This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Black women's hair was put in the spotlight when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars a couple of months ago. The coverage was extensive. Maybe too extensive. After all, aren't there better things to talk about? But that slap also presented an opportunity. Many Black women wanted to use that moment to talk about something that's deeply personal, their hair. That's because hair, specifically textured hair, means something much deeper than just beauty for many people in the Black community. Here are a couple of quick facts. According to a 2019 study, 80% of Black women said they believe they had to alter their natural hair in order to be accepted in the workplace. In 2018, a 16-year-old wrestler in New Jersey was forced by the referee to cut his dreadlocks or forfeit his match. And in 2020, administrators at a school in Orlando threatened to expel a 12-year-old girl because her natural hair was deemed a, quote, distraction. Hair discrimination takes on many forms, and it can have devastating consequences. Hairstyles can prevent people from getting jobs. Hairstyles can make people feel bad about themselves and their self-image. That's journalist and author Alalia Bundles, who is also the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, the first Black woman millionaire in America who made her fortune with the line of hair care products for Black women in the early 1900s. But the part of preventing people from getting jobs is that it has economic consequences. It has the ability to keep you from advancing in your profession. Sometimes the people who are most self-conscious about it are Black people who think if you do this, white people won't like what you've done and therefore you won't be able to be successful. But it is it becomes an excuse to discriminate against someone. And that's and that's very problematic. Bundles was interviewed for an extensive Chronicle newsroom project about hair. You can find it online now at sfchronicle.com slash hair. It aims to tackle the very complex topic of hair discrimination, from media representation to the workplace. It also covers the joyful ways that people create community and develop a sense of identity around their hair. The project was conceived by newsroom developer Catlin Sophia Allo Alapati. She's here to discuss the Chronicle's hair project and why it was a unique one for the newsroom to take on. Joining her is Chronicle business reporter Shwanika Narayan, who also reported on the project. Catlin and Shwanika, thank you so much for joining me on Fifth Emission. Thank you Thanks for, having for having us. us. <laughs> so, Catlin, you took a unique approach to analyzing hair representation issues, and you developed an algorithm to examine which hairstyles are most and least represented in the media Tell me more about that. How did it work? We we started, I mean, with a with a question, right? Which is what often is the case when when you're setting out to do some um, original analysis and research, right? And we wanted to understand what hair is most and least represented across, you know, some universe of images. Um, what we did was um, created a machine learning model 
which is a, a fancy algorithm that takes an image as input and then it spits out an output that is black and white. And each white pixel in the image represents a pixel that the model thinks is hair. And every black pixel represents anything that it identifies is not likely to be hair. Um, you train this model on, on lots of images until it becomes more and more accurate to a point that you find um, satisfactory, which is mm -hmm. if you imagine each one of these black and white images being data points, right? Um, it allowed us to look at, okay, what proportion of these images have a lot of the image you know, taken up by these white pixels and how many of them have very few white pixels, right? The findings were pretty stark, right? Um, big hair is just not represented, uh, nearly at the rate that um, much uh, smaller hairstyles are represented. And by smaller, I mean, we, we saw a lot of pixie cuts. We saw a lot of images um, of, of uh, women wearing their hair in a ponytail. And when there was more hair than just the pixels along the crown of the head, right, then usually that hair was downward, Right. What we found was that the the horizontal and vertical um, distribution that we would expect from really textured, voluminous hair was just not in the data mm -hmm. at the at the same rate that pixie cuts and and you know more straight hair mm -hmm. were. And it sounds like your research confirms a lot of probably what we suspect that textured hair is just not represented the same way as other hair in media. But this five-part series that you both worked on is pretty expansive. The third chapter just published on Tuesday. In it, Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips covers the history of Black barbershops and what they mean for Black men and boys. Shwanika, talk to me a little bit more about the scope of this entire project. What else does it cover other than this fascinating algorithm that Catelyn just described? Catelyn pitched this, and when the editors heard it, they were like, oh my God, there's at least four pretty great separate narratives, though, uh, which we need to sort of lend uh, its due focus on. Um, decided as a group to sort of make this into a series instead of one big story. Uh, to one, Kathleen sort of went over is about hair representation, where we examined, I think, 10,000 images from Vogue magazine over a 20-year period um, via the algorithm Kathleen built that she talked about. Um, analyzing the data that showed, you know, Eurocentric hair types were far more represented than any other group. Um, chapter two is about the business of hair and how hair products and tools and resources are constantly an afterthought for the mainstream hair and beauty industries when it comes to the black market uh, or for black folks um, or folks with textured hair. Um, there's a lot of brown folks that have textured hair as, as well. So if you think of uh, South Asians and Afro-Latinos, these are all groups that come under textured hair um, or people who have textured hair. Mm -hmm. um, we also examined how Black folks have filled the voids by creating avenues for them by them in terms of entrepreneurship. We examined that a little bit more in Chapter 2. Um, and then just in Chapter 3, which dropped on Tuesday, talks about how barbershops are pretty important cultural hubs for Black men and boys. Um, and then Chapter 4 is going to examine more about... Uh, it's going to talk more about the Crown Act, the intervention. So the Crown Act in terms of legislation and uh, research and education and everything that's going on is trying to create an equitable place for all hair types, textures and styles. Mm -hmm. And Catelyn, I understand this project really came from your own brainstorming. I wonder where did your own personal motivation for this story come from? What were you inspired by? 
In some ways, this is a, a dream project to be able to sink your teeth into something uh, that's not super accessible. Uh, there was a steep learning curve for me. Um, I am, have never studied machine learning. Um, so the, the, there were a lot of technical aspects of this project. That part of it is that I, I am mixed. I am um, half Samoan. And I was raised by the white half of my family in a very white uh, neighborhood in Colorado. And um, my hair was my identifier, right? It is how people found me in crowds. It is how people referred to me if they didn't know my name. Um, my hair is big and my hair is, um, uh, my aunt likes to tease me that some, on good days, my hair is like Moana and on my bad days, my hair is like Maui. <laughs> um, so it's, it's personal to me, right? And mm-hmm. in, in, in something that strikes me is that, um, hair and hair-related issues, I understand why they could be treated as something that's cosmetic, right? It is a trait that um, feels in some ways mutable. We use our hair to express ourselves, um, whether it's color or cut or style. Um, we're, we're starting to see moments where people are reckoning with hair as, as part of themselves, like mm-hmm. truly part of their identity. And if you think about um, the, the trauma that comes with losing your hair, right? Or the, the symbolism both in fiction and in history of hair being taken away from somebody, that being like the symbolic of stripping them of their power, right? Of their humanity if you cut someone's hair. Um, hair clearly is so much more than cosmetic, mm-hmm. and, but, but we don't know how to talk about it. It's something that we don't report on often. And doing a project like this, I mean, I think broadly our role as journalists um, to some extent, is just creating a record of humanity. Mm-hmm. Right? There's something to be said for um, really people at the Chronicle who I'm very grateful for. You know, seeing the value in really, really wrangling this together and creating an original record um, that was not really riffing off of something that already existed. Uh, in order to say to people, you know, there are folks who say. Growing up, I did not feel like I was represented or that people in the media who were portrayed as beautiful, I did not feel like they ever looked like me. And what we can say now is that's measurable. Mm-hmm. We can say, yes, yes, and I can, I can show you, at least through this particular lens, how we're able to demonstrate that with, with numbers. So, right, right. And we know, of course, hair representation issues is linked so closely with race. And Shwanika, you were one of the reporters on this project that looked at that issue, especially how hair discrimination plays out in people's day-to-day lives. Tell me more about that. Why are we talking about this now? Yes. So as Kathleen was saying, it is in general, an important topic. But what's also interesting about what's happening now is that there's a lot of momentum in wanting to actually do something about hair discrimination, textured hair discrimination through legislation, right? So we're seeing laws enacted and beginning in California in 2019, uh, the Crown Act, which stands for creating a respectful and open workplace for natural hair, um, which really finessed language that directly addressed um, a particular type of hair discrimination, one that disproportionately affects uh, black folks and those who have textured hair. Uh, black hair can be worn in many different styles, right? So think dreadlocks, twists, braids, 
But a lot of times the specific hairstyles are penalized in professional settings, be it the workplace, in education, in sports. So for the first time, really, we're seeing a recourse for people, for, for people who've dealt with this kind of hair discrimination, finally having an avenue to really do something about this in a way that might matter, right? Mm-hmm. They have a legal recourse to actually do something about it, um, which they did not have before. Last week, two states, Maine and, and Tennessee, joined 14 other states. So 16 states now have legalized the Crown Act, um, which uh, specifically bans textured hair discrimination. And right now, there are at least 10 other states that are considering the bill. And, and on the federal level, it's passed the House, um, but it's still awaiting uh, to go through the Senate. Um, so that's another reason why we really wanted to focus, because the time was just right to tell this story. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Catlin, part of inclusion in this space is having access to hair care and products that address your specific hair texture. And Catlin, you spoke to a number of people around the Bay Area who have said that access to hair products and professionals is a really big issue for them. Tell me more about how that's impacted their day-to-day lives. I can't really um, understate the the impact of, of, of not having access to hair resources. It's one of my greatest takeaways from um, one of my interviews was this this phrase um, from Andronica Klaus. She said, it's the joy of convenience, right? So so we can talk about, um, you know, the, the amount of time that someone might have to drive um, to get to and from a, a hair appointment. And we can talk about the time that they actually have to spend in the chair, um, getting hair braided, treated, what have you. We can talk about the um, lack of resources that are available in stores. So, but really... It, it's also fundamentally just the joy of convenience that I think lots of folks take for granted if they have access to all of the resources that they need um, to make their hair look a way that they know is going to be accepted by their peers, right? And in speaking to a lot of folks in the Bay, like the, the issue is not um, the certainty of being discriminated against. It is, in fact, the uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? The idea that you can just show up for work as you are and certainly be accepted as competent, as thoughtful, as capable, as intelligent, and as a, a full, you know, autonomous human being with agency and, and someone who deserves to be treated with dignity. Um, that's what we're talking about with hair. It's one person I spoke with, uh, Gekka Zuma. Uh, she re- relocated to the South Bay, to Stanford, um, from Atlanta in 2017 to attend medical school. Um, she struggled to find someone with the time to style her hair who wasn't too far away and wasn't too expensive. If I wanted to do a hairstyle, I have to plan my life like three months out. 
And so that was just like really inconvenient as, you know, like a student, I don't know how much money I'm going to have by then. And so if I have an event like in, during the weekend and I need something last minute, it's not as easy because there aren't as many people who do black hair. And then when they are, they're like, you know, super busy and booked months out in advance. And then because she was so busy, a uh, number of hairstyles she can do is limited. Another concern that Zuma had, uh, and, and she very clearly said that she didn't have it to the same extent when she was living in Atlanta or uh, in her hometown of Bulware in, in South Africa, was just feeling this extra pressure to show up in a way that she knew other people were going to perceive as professional. And that includes um, her colleagues. It includes, you know, students in her class, but it also included the patients that she treats in the hospital. It's going to look respectable, I guess. What is going to make me look less threatening to patients? You know, what is going to be more acceptable uh, to my peers? Because I'm already a Black woman with an accent, dark-skinned, and so I, I feel like I already have so much going against me that I definitely do think about that when it comes to hair. So, Shwanika, we know the hair care industry is super lucrative. It's estimated to be worth more than $77 billion, and Black Americans make up the largest customer share of ethnic hair and beauty market. How is that playing out in the Bay Area? Are there many options for folks with textured hair here? We're hearing Ketlin describe some of the challenges of one person. But generally, what what's going on in the Bay Area? Well, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, a lot of black hair care products are still put on the sort of back aisles of drugstores. Uh, um, so it's still sort of like, you know, separated from mainstream products. Um, and then in terms of just services as well, besides the convenience aspect of it in terms of accessibility and how close a salon might be, the issue of cost is also something uh, that can come up. Um, we are seeing a little bit of investment in some uh, black hair care products. Uh, I know in San Francisco, um, Natanya Montgomery, who owns Naza Hair Salon, and it has a great sort of offering for textured hair and protective styles for, for black hair is actually venture backed. So she was able to raise money from Silicon Valley, which is very, very unusual, uh, but it is happening. Like after many months of searching for hair resources, uh, hair services in the Bay Area, um, Bongeka Zuma, who I mentioned earlier, a medical student, was, she was still hitting a lot of dead ends, right? And ultimately the bigger pivot in her story um, was when her her childhood friend, Andronica uh, Klaus, moved from North Carolina to the Bay Area um, because she got a job at Meta. And um, that kind of underscores two things. And one of them is um, it, you know, both women described the, the beauty, almost the, the sanctity of this time that they have together that it's really like a magical thing that really can't be replaced by any service that any you know stranger could provide in a professional setting. Um, but the second thing is that it, it underscores the, the lack of availability of services that this is, you know, the only viable option. There isn't another avenue to take if one of the women moves away from the Bay Area. So, Shwanika, we're hearing about how hair discrimination translates into 
really negative experiences for employees in different kinds of workplaces. How can employers start thinking about those kinds of issues in their own offices? Well, one way to um, address this is to don't do it. (laughs) But (laughs) we know that implicit bias requires a lot of unlearning. Um, But one thing they can do is, um, you know, really maybe examine, and employees, and this includes workplaces and schools as well, really examine some of their protocols for, for employees and students that lay out maybe attire, you know, dress codes, and see if they have things like, you cannot wear dreadlocks because if they do in California, that's actually illegal. <laughs> mm-hmm. So starting with basics of like what they already have uh, in their work protocols would be a good start point. Um, having conversations around this in groups uh, where hopefully the burden isn't on black and brown people to explain why this is an issue um, and, and to just get more training on um, how to go about it, I guess, would be a, a good way to start. So we spoke to Gloria Dallas, who works to help tech companies improve their diversity and retention. And one of the things she told Ketlin was that a lot of this comes out, comes down to unconscious bias. When you start getting into the granular reasons for why the old tech companies are having such a hard time with hiring and retaining underrepresented talent, there's a lot of factors into it. Some of it is subconscious bias. Some of it are unconscious biases. Some of it's the way that we are trained. Some of it is access. Some of it is, you know, educational backgrounds. There's a lot of different factors into this. So what a big project this has been, a really big undertaking, a unique project for our newsroom, certainly. Catelyn, what's your big takeaway from this project, getting it off the ground, working on this algorithm and looking at this project from so many different facets? What do you hope people will learn? I um, I assume that this is going to resonate to varying degrees with people. Right? So I, I hope that folks approach this with truly an open mind. I know that there will be some readers for whom um, the, the idea of a five-chapter series on hair is going to absolutely blow their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to be questioning how we allocate our resources. And I hope that they read and come to a greater understanding of why we decided to spend so much time on this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a collaborative effort that really uh, required coordination between reporters and designers and um, developers, in my case, right, that we hadn't seen as a, as a newsroom. And I think it was really ultimately a beautiful undertaking. Um, the, with the fifth chapter, where we are asking um readers and just members of audience, not necessarily audience, like you do not have to be someone who subscribes and and avidly reads the Chronicle to be someone who has something to say about their hair. And we want to hear from those people, Mm -hmm. right? We want them to construct their own narrative with the help of, you know, with the support of an editorial staff um, and share their story in a way that I I don't think we we get to do very often. And Shwanika, what about for you? It was, yeah, it was a a huge learning experience for me as well. I sort of also started to really closely follow all the Crown Act legislation that was just sort of sweeping across the country. Um, And this is still fairly new. This started with California. uh, And it's just been um, a humbling experience and one that I was very, very happy to be a part of. Uh, So for that, I'm grateful. This 
project was born out of a desire for diversity, not just in um, who our reporting partners are, but also the the subject that we're reporting on. Um, so often, the representations of people of color are simply about, um, you know, systemic failures. And, and we include some of that here, right? We are talking about ways in which systems have failed people of color, Black folks in particular. And throughout this project, what I would hope is that anyone is able to very easily identify so many pockets of joy. And so what I hope folks find throughout these chapters, I, I hope that they find it in Justin's chapter on boys and men. And I hope that they definitely find it in the, the fifth chapter that just includes people's reflections. I hope they see so much damn joy. That's what I want. I hope it oozes joy. That was newsroom developer Catlin Sophia Allo Elapati and Chronicle business reporter Shwanika Narayan. As Catlin mentioned, the newsroom wants to hear from you about your personal journey and relationship with hair. How do you think people perceive your hair? What do you continue to struggle with? Send your responses to culture at sfchronicle.com with the subject line, My Hair. If your response is selected, you will be compensated for your contributions. The email address, again, is culture at sfchronicle.com. The latest chapter of The Hair Project is about the history of Black barbershops and what they mean to Black men and boys. It's written by Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips, and you can find that chapter and the whole Hair Project at sfchronicle.com slash hair. Shwanika's reporting on the Crown Act, which bans hair discrimination in the workplace, will be available next Tuesday. Thank you to producer Karen Creighton and editor King Kaufman, and to you for listening.